Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My guest today is a multi-hyphen powerhouse who has developed her passions into credible and successful professional avenues so well, I am in awe of everything she's achieved already. She's a clever, articulate and dedicated advocate for electric cars, which combined with a lifelong passion for motorsport, has culminated in the birth of the world's first all-electric junior formula racing series. It's called the Software AG ERA Championship, to use its full name, and she is a co-founder and director. While motorsport is a huge part of her life, she grew up close to Silverstone Circuit and has been a marshal, a race director, a commentator, a writer... She is also an accomplished musician and composer. I always research my guests before every show and this is the first time I've had the pleasure of listening to my guests work while writing the introduction. I cannot wait to get stuck into today's conversation so let's get started. My guest today is Beth Georgiou and I'm going to check that I've actually said your last name properly because that's the main thing that I was worried about. No it's good, I mean there's no proper English way to say my surname anyway so... (laughs) When and where did your racing life begin? It's a big question. I mean, I I think my passion started off in touring cars, which is kind of funny, really, considering I'm now really in the in single seater world. As you said already, I grew up near Silverstone and went to school really nearby. And sometimes if I wanted a bit of an escape, I used to walk to the edge of the track boundaries from the outside and just kind of watch track days going on from the outside and looking in. And then I think at some point started actually going inside as well (laughs) and just volunteering for stuff and getting involved with activities and what started off as just some kind of curiosity became um, a bit of a hobby and then a passion. And I think it was (laughs) a lot to do with being a bit of a stubborn teenage girl that wanted to prove herself and seeing that there wasn't so many other women around in the paddock. I was like, well, if I'm there, then there's a woman there. That's uh, that's kind of, um, that was really my logic at the time. Like, oh, if, I, if I'm there, then at least there's some representation. And um, yeah, it kind of stuck. Yeah, fair enough. I often feel like that as well. And it's actually really nice when um, you look around and you're not the only woman anymore. I know. And it's such a relief nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really nice. So would you say you were a fan of motorsport before starting to 
take some time out watching cars go by? Or is it literally because you grew up next to it? I was definitely a fan. Um, I think I was actually more engaged with things like the BTCC than I was in F1, funnily enough. I was definitely watching F1 and very aware of it because obviously living near Silverstone, whenever there was a British Grand Prix, especially back in the 90s, it was you could feel it around everything. And I I don't feel like, may, I don't know what it is. I don't feel like there's that kind of all-encompassing feeling now. Maybe they've streamlined the traffic better. But I remember it pretty much felt like this part of the UK just stopped and went standstill when it was the British Grand Prix. So it was like the helicopters all over the house, could hear it from the house. It was so exciting. Um, but in terms of what I was actually engaging in as a as a motorsport fan, it was, it was the BTCC, um, which was messier bit more grassroots um it I don't know it drew me in in a way where I felt like I I could feel like I, I belonged in in that world and and I loved the fact that with tin tops I could see this is something I can imagine being on the road and for somebody really really young that connection was really exciting because it was like these are road cars but really fast but of course as I as I got older and kind of got more interested in in the engineering and the technology I discovered that formula cars were where this cutting edge tech was taking place um so then I began to get more engaged with with formula cars and that was uh that kind of grew from there but I think initially as a kid um the the touring cars were what drew me in and I used to buy car magazines and memorize all the stats which is quite weird but <laughs> it's your passion point what does it matter brilliant so hang on tip top racing in the 90s so uh, Jason Plato I mean what what are your earliest memories here who who was racing at the time I remember Brands Hatch really vividly in the 90s and weirdly growing up near Silverstone I think I would still say that Brands Hatch is my favorite British circuit and if I was to put ERA on a British circuit it would definitely be Brands Hatch and I, I remember being there in in the really early early 90s so I would have been a, a toddler and I must have been family friends that had taken me there and just being overwhelmed and it wasn't you know funnily enough it wasn't even the driver's presence that almost didn't matter to me it was just it was just the machinery <laughs> It was the cars. Wow. With British touring car, I completely understand what you mean with it being more relatable. There are brands involved. You know, the cars that you see, you know that you can actually go and buy a car from that same manufacturer. So were you aware of that? Did you grow up wanting to buy a Vauxhall because of VXR, which is the team that I remember, or a Chevrolet, which would have been harder? I remember when when Honda was suddenly really visible in the touring cars that was all I wanted was a Honda and then also I discovered Japanese motorsport as well so the last combustion car I actually owned was basically because of watching the touring cars and then I remember in my teens discovering like rally and then I wanted a super impress <laughs> yes bright blue yeah yeah exactly the the ones that were absolutely bright blue and you'd sometimes see them like going around you know they'd have ridiculous paint jobs and be like completely not suitable for the road and like lowered within an inch of their lives and covered in mud and yeah that was that was the dream and I think it felt it felt like a level of attainable that obviously when you look at um, sports cars and um, formula cars, it's it's almost alien when you were a kid. You can't you can't relate it to any kind of silly dreams and fantasies of future car ownership. And 
I think apparently I, I was five years old when I told my mum I was ready to get my driver's license. <laughs> so clearly I clearly I had some like lofty ambitions as a five year old that I was I was ready to drive. So I had a revelation a few days ago. I've never been karting ever in my life. Like still now. That's exactly what I was thinking. I've never karted and I don't even think I knew karting existed and I don't come from a motorsport family. So that's probably an important part of it. I mean, I vaguely remember hearing like people at school talking about karting, but I didn't really know it was a thing and definitely didn't know that karting led to to racing drivers racing in Formula One. That was just something that wasn't even on my radar. And I think that it's it's really strange to look back now because, of course, karting is exactly the start of, of, of driving school. If you're a racing driver, that's where they all started. But for me, it was not even something I was I was conscious of. And um, I don't think I even realized that racing drivers started training when they were like little children. I think I even knew about that. And without having that motorsport family and that motorsport background, if you're not from a racing background, it almost seems crazy to, to parents. And my my um my mum still thinks I'm crazy today for what I do and I'm not even racing. So <laughs> I, I think my my um my perception of motorsport was literally what I had invented in my own head as as a as a small kid. And it's strange when I got older and started to piece the puzzle together and connect the dots. What a wonderful place to have been, though, as a child to actually get to have motorsport as your sort of dream world um, with no rules and no additional understanding, because it's pretty powerful. It's crazy when I when I think about it. And I, I still remember like having battered copies of I definitely remember having Top Gear magazine for the road cars, <laughs> which is quite quite cringy looking back and motorsport magazine, race car engineering um, just having battered copies of those that I used to like take into school with me and like show to my friends and we would just we would just look at the numbers that's the funny thing I remember my I, some of my family were really into watching the Formula One and they were really into the personalities and this was um, this would have been you know Schumacher and Ferrari that those kind of days when I was young and that was all really cool but I think I was I was almost too young to get engaged with the human side of it and the drama and the personalities and I think that came a, a lot later for me when I suddenly started being like okay interested in you know the soap opera side of racing the the drama the people I just wanted to see the science of it and that was really what drew me in I love it it's such a different perspective because I came to it much later and it was all about the people. It was completely, it was two things. It was realizing that as a profession, I could be a marketeer, a communications person and work outside, but effectively travel the world. That was very much a ding, ding. This is amazing. I'm going after that. And it was the soap opera. I literally called it, this is EastEnders on wheels. It's amazing. Um, to quote a very British reference. It totally is that. I'm, I'm really glad someone says that because... Um... But yeah, I, I think that was just something that I wasn't aware of. And perhaps it's like an age thing or, you know, it just didn't it didn't cross my mind. Like, it just felt like that's that was the grown up stuff. You know, that was they were that was so beyond me as a kid. And now when you're older, like, obviously, that's um, that's kind of the fun part, isn't it? But uh, when I was young, it was it wasn't even something that factored in. I almost didn't care who was under the helmet. I just wanted to. Um, to find out more about about the cars. In, in fact, I don't even think it mattered to me so much who won. I wasn't even so drawn into the, the first place, second place, third place excitement. It was like the the race action was more interesting than the outcome. 
yeah, the performance of it, the actual, you know, cars on track. That makes t- total sense. As a kid, of course, that you know, that's the obvious bit to get caught up into. Everything else is underneath a layer. So, no, it makes sense. Gosh, given all of this then, I really want to ask you my next question, which is, did you choose motorsport or do you feel like it chose you? I think I chose it because when I went and went to study, um, I didn't study anything remotely in the field of motorsport. I did consider studying physics. So I guess that would have brought me vaguely within the wheelhouse, but I ended up studying music. So I didn't study anything to do with motorsport whatsoever. Um, And for the time, the four years where I was doing my undergraduate degree, motorsport didn't really factor into my life at all. I stopped doing anything because I was living in London and not really able to travel that much because I was a student um, and busy doing eight hours of music practice a day. So I took kind of a, a break from really thinking about it at all. And I think the only um, the only engagement I had with motorsport was a couple of us used to watch all the F1 at this point. And I'd even disengaged from, from watching touring cars and things like that because I just simply didn't have the time. But when I graduated... Um, the first thing I did was start working and racing again because I thought, okay, this is something I know and can understand. So it kind of was a really conscious decision. And again, I think it was this this stubbornness and being always drawn to things where people didn't expect me to be. It's strange. Sometimes I wonder how I got here for sure. So it's a good question. I mean, I definitely think we'll have to get into that, especially for everyone listening, because I don't know about you, but I have so many people getting in touch, asking me for recommendations for their studies. You know, what should they go and study next? And obviously you always give as good advice as you can with what you know. But one of the biggest thing that I'm glad you're you're mentioning is that you don't necessarily have to study something that's relevant to motorsport. You could still end up in it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? And studying, I don't even know, I don't even know how I feel about studying relevancy I mean obviously if you want to be an engineer then you should go study engineering there's some quite clear obvious um obvious choices that need to be made if you have a specific field but do I believe that studies prepare you for the real world more than experience does no I don't think so I think that if you want to work in motorsport the best thing is is to get out there and get involved even if it's through volunteering and to try and experience everything and when I started having vague ambitions of what I wanted to do on this scale with motorsport what I spent my time doing was trying to get involved in everything and understand all aspects of of the sport from driving to marshalling to to everything and I think that the 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 most important thing is is just to get experience rather than this big what do I study what's also it's hard it's hard at 18 um to make those big decisions and think that they'll influence the rest of your life. And it's, it's also not that simple. So while it's great that people are considering their studies and looking at how that's going to influence them in the future, then maybe there's too much pressure on making sure you make the right study choice and how it will influence your career. Because, I mean, look, at I've got a music degree, so <laughs> um, I didn't have anything less relevant for motorsport. And yet I'm still here. So... I think if you're if you're not clearly wanting to do things like engineering, it's so obvious if you want to be an engineer to study engineering. But that's one of the few examples I can think of in our sport where there's there's this clear pathway. And uh, most people I know in the sport now haven't come to it through this like little tidy journey. It's been messy, you know. 
absolutely definitely my gosh I think I before I got to Formula One I think I did every single potential aspect of motorsport as far as a comms person is concerned you know working for sponsors working for my own series so relating to you a lot with what you're going through at the moment working for agencies you know I, I think I did everything I think by the time I got to be the role that I was initially targeting which was to be a comms person within a Formula One team I had literally experienced every single aspect of communication within motorsport at all levels before I got there and that's what made me good not my degree my degree was a 20 year old trying to get through university I dread to think I'd hate to reread anything I've written when I was there I'm sure I'm really cringe yeah that, that should be a, that should be a podcast all on itself but I think it would be a podcast where you'd need a fair amount of alcohol first I do still have my dissertation actually which was on Formula One and um, I, d- I don't want to open it <laughs> So we've spoken about your studies. Let's talk about what you're currently doing because it's incredibly exciting. And I'd just like to read something that you wrote on LinkedIn recently. As obviously, I researched what you'd done in the last few months just to get a, a sense and be able to, to do this podcast a bit better than just asking your question out cold. And it really resonated with what I know of you and how I've experienced you, obviously, in the few times that we've met. We've been very lucky to have met a few times thanks to the FIA, ETCR and uh, ERA, which are both on the same weekend. You wrote, this is what it means to bring something new to motorsport in the world of 2022. Being a disruptor was never meant to be easy and the journey is only at the beginning. You have such a huge job currently with what you're trying to achieve Tell us a little bit more about your role and the series, because I know how passionate you are about it as well. And I think everybody needs to know that. I'm glad I actually expressed myself fairly accurately on LinkedIn. (laughs) It's been a really hard year for the industry. When we first set out with ERA, it was a few years ago now. And uh, I guess none of us could have predicted what would happen globally. It's funny because uh, people ask for the origin story and like really ERA was the classic pub chat. A bunch of people in motorsport, uh, some of them fully involved now with ERA, some of them just like nicely on the sidelines in their kind of regular motorsport career that um, were kind of involved in the like the embryonic stage. Um, So the people that are involved in it day to day, yes, like we are obviously... um, kind of instrumental in the, the start of it but it was a lot of voices at the beginning that brought this here and that's kind of important to know but it was some um, chat that went oh yeah but we could actually try something here I think that's the beauty of it really is that it wasn't something manufactured by a big organization uh, it really was a, a bunch of people that were just kind of passionate about doing something and we're still surprised that we're here even though we're only at the start, really, and we've still got a lot more to do to, to prove the series and to prove ourselves. Um, the fact that we're here, sometimes it makes me laugh because I can't quite believe it. <laughs> can't quite believe it. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe that's not a good thing to share about the origin, but I think it. our whole thing is always being honest about all of the, the challenges, all of the good things, um, what, what our aims are. Um, it's sort of our one of our company policies now at this point is just um, complete transparency, really. And that is, that's the truth of it. We, um, we had some ideas. They've certainly evolved a lot. That's another thing about being sort of a startup uh, organisation is that we have flexibility and we can do stuff. And I think that's something that is often missing in, in our sport because it's a sport that's got 
so many years of heritage behind it uh, and so much tradition, so much bureaucracy, so many rules. Um, and that's, that's also what makes it great and what means we can, we've, we've got massive, amazing things that take place. But when you have big organisations that have gone for a long time, it's difficult to make quick changes because you've normally got to go through like 100 people and get 100 different approvals. So we were in this position where we were small and um, agile. And that means that when, when I think we launched our first car in 2019 in Silverstone, um, I think it was in August 2019, that was our kind of first ever prototype. The cars massively changed because we, we then had a pandemic and um, we could have gone, okay, well, this is, this is it then because we're not going racing anytime soon. The cost of production is going up. The logistics have gone wild. Nothing makes sense anymore. The industry is going to struggle. But instead, we used that time to acquire an innovation grant and developed our battery further started doing a lot more things in-house and maybe it wasn't the utmost best thing we could have done with that time who knows because it's hard to predict but we used that time in a productive way that meant that when we could then reveal our car the final version that we're we're racing with now um, we'd made some years of progress that probably if we'd have started racing sooner and there'd been no pandemic it wouldn't have happened it's been a lot about adaptability the last few years and I think also we saw that electric motorsport we were all passionate about. There was there was loads of reasons why why we were all passionate about electric motorsport. But what we were also also passionate about was using this shift to make other changes as well. And we saw this as an opportunity to solve or not solve other problems. I think that would be it would be big big to say we're solving problems, but um, there's a lot of there's a lot of shift in mentality within our sport and how we can um, make our sport more relevant to the world we live in today. And we felt like actually at a junior level um, where things are more affordable and more accessible, if we could bring in some some changes at that level, then those changes will filter up. Whereas I think quite typically we look at how to filter changes from the top down. And in some situations that can be really difficult. So, you know, we saw that as an opportunity to address some things that we didn't like about our sport. Maybe that's not the right way to say it, but things that we felt like needed improve in order to, to bring more people into the sport and welcome more people that maybe didn't look at motorsport and thought this isn't for me. I think it's just been crazy to launch anything new at this time. Um, and people have been really patient with us, which is which is great because um, pretty much every issue that could have been thrown at us has been thrown at us, and we're just like busy adapting and dodging and changing to to fit with this world. Um, and I think we're now in a position where we can firmly say that we're here and we're racing, and we have everything we need now to make this happen. We've come out really strong at the end of it. Yeah, you're progressing hugely. And for the benefit of people who might not know about ERA very well, it's a Formula 4 car. It's a Formula 4 chassis adapted or it was it existed already and it's been taken and fitted so that it's an electric Formula car. And the idea of it is to fill the bridge between electric karting and 
more established series like Formula E and EGCR. So the sort of already running electric um, series that have got people there and drivers there already. Electric karting, which has become more and more successful. And then you've got this massive void and you're trying to help people bridge that gap, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the 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 chassis is the the Japanese Formula Four chassis by by Dome. Um, it's actually the first time that chassis has been been used in Europe. Um, they were really keen to work on an electrification project, so it made a lot of sense to to work with them. Then we obviously build the the back end of the car, we build the the powertrain, and then the uh, the human machine interface. So like the brains of the car. We also take it kind of a step further. So although we're using a Formula 4 chassis, we don't we don't really consider ourselves like an electric Formula 4. It's it's more about the Formula 4 being what we saw as the most efficient platform for what we wanted to achieve. So um, the car doesn't weigh a lot more than a Formula 4 car. I think it's maybe 5% heavier. But obviously, when you consider a Formula 4 car fuels and it pretty much balances out. And also importantly was we wanted to keep the cost down. And this is one of the biggest challenges when building electric cars at the moment is, and a lot of people focus on like the super hyper mega ultra fastest thing. And that's, you know, that's cool. It brings a lot of press. It's really exciting. Um, But actually one of the more difficult things is how do we build something that doesn't cost the earth? And that was our, our kind of brief the whole time was we need to build something that's uh, attainable so that we can target people from all kind of backgrounds we can uh, encourage companies to get involved with the car and bring in their technology and a lot of these companies were also startups so didn't have a big budget to be involved in in top level things so um, that was really where where our challenge was but despite that we still um, made our car very tech heavy and like cutting edge technology is one of the most important things we're doing and it's um it's how we're really um engaging in our usp within the industry so all our cars are um an iot device an internet of things device which means every car is its own wi-fi hotspot which is not normal especially not in in junior formula levels of motorsport i mean this has got endless possibilities but at the moment what this means is we're sending data in real time directly back to our pit lane to our engineers we're able to feed data to our drivers um, and ultimately it means we'll be able to feed live data to our fans as well and the platform that you view this data on is totally customizable. So if you're an engineer and you're specifically focused on one thing, you can say, okay, I want to view this data, this data, this data. I like this one as a graph. I like this one as a a bar chart. This is how I want my data. And it's quite revolutionary and especially in in a junior formula series. For the drivers, it's so valuable to be able to be corrected and understand things in real time because normally it's a case of showing them videos later and being like oh yeah you remember when you went wrong here on turn seven and they're like yeah um they don't remember <laughs> and also i mean learning to drive an electric car for for an inexperienced driver is very different and we're learning that we weren't expecting um how different it would be and you see like if we put a 16 year old driver in the car and we put regen regenerative braking on the car they they they're fine you put a a really experienced driver 
um, with a lot of titles and um, a lot of wins behind their name and you put 80% region on, they're going into the gravel. So <laughs> we're learning alongside our drivers and learning what their needs are and being able to have access to this data is is really exciting. And as a series, we are an open book with our data, which means that if you drive with us, you are willing that all drivers' data will be shared with within other drivers. So um, all our cars are the same. We can prove it. We've got the data to prove it. So if this driver is faster than you and you want to know why, um, we'll take the fastest driver's data and show you, look, this is the footwork. This is what's happening. This is how you can improve. It's obviously supposed to be fiercely competitive, but also we want to nurture kind of a, a family community with our drivers. And they're all learning from each other because they are with us intended to be at the start of their career. And we want to give them all the tools so that they can go into the world and make it an ETCR or Formula E or wherever it is they choose to go next. And so we think that for those drivers, that transparency and learning from one another uh, is, is kind of the best way to go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's a real academy element to what you're doing, isn't it? And I was actually looking a bit more on the website. I didn't realize, but like you can actually book to drive the cars as well. Like if so, I, if I wanted to come and experience it, I can actually book and and go find you and drive it. And it's a totally new thing. In fact, it started in September. Um, so our partner company, uh, ERA Racing School. So there's a, a bunch of our cars that live permanently year round now at Circuit Zolder, um, which is another great thing is that we don't have noise issues with our cars. So racing on circuits was really important for us um, to help 
especially circuits that have a lot of noise issues. We have a lot of that in the UK as well. Um, Zolder is a great example of this in Belgium. They, I think they can only run a few weekends making noise a year. And the rest of the time they have to be creative and run cycling and things like that on the circuit. But we don't want these circuits to go. We're, we're motorsport people. We want them to survive as a business. And if people keep building holiday homes next to circuits and then calling to complain about the noise, then we're going to lose all of these places. So it's a really great opportunity. I mean, also in the future, it means we could do night races. It's an accessible car in terms of performances. It's not designed to be the fastest car in the world. It's designed to, to fit this this space in motorsport, which means that we can open that car up for other people to drive and to have an experience. So if you maybe are just interested in electric racing and want to do a few laps, we now have uh, little racing experience courses where anybody can go and go to circuits older and get a chance to drive the car on track. And if it's your first time ever in a single seater car and the first time ever, they'll take you in the sim first. So you learn the, the track a little bit and then the car is uh, software adjustable, so we can make the car a bit less aggressive for your first time round so that you feel totally confident when we do turn the power up that you you know the car, you know the track. And there's never been an opportunity as far as I know yet for people that aren't pro racing drivers to get behind the wheel of an electric race car because at the moment you You've got um, only this this top tier of, of racing and it's not like the average person is going to get behind the wheel of an ETCR car as much as we would like to. <laughs> We've got something that's really accessible and um, possible and, and attainable. So that's that's kind of another really important element for us is, is to make something that everybody can ultimately enjoy um, from a fan perspective, from a driving perspective, whatever. If you, if you want to come and get in the car, then you can from September this year. That's amazing. I'm really excited about that. And also having just recently been to Zolder for the first time, it's a brilliant place. What a nice track. What a nice region of the world. Yeah, it's lovely. So everybody go. <laughs> Putting the spotlight back on you a little bit more. Having said everything we've just said and understanding how big your role is, um, because I think effectively you're doing everything. You're just trying to get those cars on track and everybody mucks in. Would you say there's a misconception around your job? You know, what, what is the, your mum and dad or your friends, you know, what do they assume that is completely wrong about your job? And don't say champagne because we know everyone thinks we drink champagne all day. I know. I wish that was true. Um, I think that, I, I think people just have, have no idea. I, the, the thing is when you see a formula car, people get really excited. Nothing excites people like seeing a formula car because, because it is just so alien and so, um, so evocative to see a formula car. So that, that's generally the things people focus on. People don't really understand what I do full stop and I'm not great at filling them in. <laughs> so normally I think everyone thinks that we have this really glamorous life of traveling to racetracks and then you're like, well, actually you travel to a racetrack, but you don't see anything else except for the racetracks. So I think that's a that's a huge misconception is people are like, oh, you're traveling a lot. You must see all of these exciting things. You must get to be a tourist. And it's like, no, you don't you don't get any of that. That coupled with like the lack of sleep that you have on a, a race weekend, which I think yeah. we're all pretty familiar with. The race weekends are great, but when you're in them, it can be it can also be hell, right? Because you're knackered, you're trying to do your job when you're running at like 50% brain power. When I knew that I wanted to run a series, 
maybe not. I wasn't really expecting to have my own series. I didn't think that was really something that was possible. But when I wanted, when I knew my ambition was to to run a team or to run a series, um, I spent a lot of weekends for like two or three years um, marshalling. The reason I did that was, like I think I said before, I wanted to get kind of a holistic understanding of motorsport. And the marshals are so consistent such an intrinsic part of our sport but so often forgotten um it felt like something where I really needed to go and 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 experience that and I did I went nearly every weekend for two years on top of doing my nine to five job running formula student um so it was it was a lot it really was an eye-opener for me I think that was the greatest lesson I learned in our sport was was doing that role because there's also way more about marshalling than people think even people in the sport I think they think they just kind of stand on the sidelines and wave flags but you can be a marshal that runs the garages you can be a marshal that's weighing the cars you can you can almost have on have kind of scrutineering roles I mean I also did some stewarding as well which is then totally different because your job is basically penalizing drivers and telling drivers off all weekend and making a bunch of enemies so um, I became really confident with telling people off and um, and analyzing footage of racing and um, deciding what was racing incidents and what was um, what was worth penalties I learned about um, the legal processes that you know it actually in motorsport I think people don't realize that decisions can go to court um, that that's the thing and police can be involved in certain incidents that I think people forget that it's you know, it's a sport, but it's within a real world framework. And I marshaled some events and especially the the most dangerous events to marshal. And marshals are really, they they put their lives at danger and they're not they're not paid for it, which is crazy. They're probably the most important people in our sport and our sport that makes a lot of money. And some of the most important people in it are not paid for it. And yet they turn up every week. So it's working with them was inspirational but the most dangerous martial experience I had weren't at the big events where um where you see the drama on tv and you're like oh there was a near miss with f1 at the marshal it's actually in the grassroots events and that's because normally less people want to go marshal them so there's been times where I was running marshal posts by myself because um it's not a glamorous exciting event so there's not enough of us we're trying to cover an event in a rain and you've just got cars coming at you like just crashing into the wall with inexperienced drivers, like race after race after race, and you're dealing with car after car after car just coming off. And sometimes they, they're on TV. And I think that for my friends and family was when they were like, actually, you're putting yourself in a lot of danger. Like we've seen you um, with a car on fire, like coming at you, like, this is crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> and that was when I think people realized that they're, you know, I think we think about how the drivers put themselves at danger, but the people on the track also do as well. And that was a real eye opener for my friends and family because they were, they saw some things on television where they were like, oh my God, you, you put yourself in real danger. And, <laughs> and they were like, are you sure that this is, this is what you should be doing? And I was like, well, honestly, I don't know, because there's been some, you know, there's some crazy weekends and you sometimes really question it yourself, but then you go back again. So I guess I guess it is what you're supposed to be doing. I think it's the passion, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right to do that role 
knowing the physicality of it as well and the dangers and not being paid for it you know you're there because you're passionate about it officials and marshals often you get like the negative comments of course because fans don't really appreciate what they're doing and they see it as interrupting the race they're watching so I think it was so valuable for me to know that because any race weekend that I do I I'm so appreciative of every single person on that track. I know how hard they've worked and how dedicated they are. They're possibly way more dedicated than a lot of people that are, you know, in their in their paid job, to be honest, because they're really doing it on top of their their normal lives. Um, and I think it really turned on my head the entire perception of how the the, the great machine that is motorsport worked and turned my perception of, of officials and 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 volunteers completely around and I think that has made me the the leader in in ERA that I am today is is very much shaped by that understanding so I'm grateful I took that time to um to kind of understand everything from those roles how do you define success for yourself I know you've had a lot of challenges in the way I feel like getting the cars on track for a race was probably a championship winning worthy moment but yeah tell me yeah it's really weird because people keep asking me about that look the backstory of this year is post-pandemic we've obviously gone back to normal but it hasn't gone back to normal everything is delayed everything's more expensive logistics are a nightmare so our season that was all nicely planned out um, towards the end of the pandemic didn't go how we thought timeline wise. Um, it was really nothing that we could control as well. And that's the worst because um, if, it's, if it's things that impact you that you, you could have foreseen, then at least you can learn from it. But how am I supposed to learn from parts of the cars being delayed by six months I mean even things like steering wheels were difficult to get this year and also we've been busy going through our FIA approval to be an international series which is a massive deal so it's it's just been been crazy I mean that's it's fantastic that we managed to achieve that and I'm I'm so proud and also so grateful to everybody within the FIA that um that helped us get there when we've been dealing with all of these these global issues and have been patient with us because obviously the whole industry has been struggling with these issues. But because we're new, we have so much more to prove. We're not a brand. We're not like a famous brand. Everyone's obviously going to question us. And when the world is throwing problems at you, you constantly think, well, God, everyone out there is going to think it's us that's the problem and not not the world because they don't know. Um, And also because we were new, we didn't have backup things. So we didn't have old parts of cars. We could put together to, to get our cars working everything was um was brand new and we were just playing the waiting game so when we actually finally got to have our first race and make history and it and unplanned it turned out to be in our home circuit next to our workshop it was like it was this crazy kind of like universe um moment and it was not perfect racing it was not uh, maybe what we expected but it was great racing. It was really great, even though not all of the cars made it onto the track and um, not all of the drivers made it there. Um, we had super close racing. Everybody was in, in the crowds was elated, was going crazy because we had like 17, 18 overtakes between P1 and P2. We had a lot of drama. We were showing like the power of racing when every car is is identical, like how close that can look. It was incredible and you can see I think if you watch our Eurosport 
footage, which is also available on our YouTube. You can see our team going absolutely wild, which is amazing. But also alongside our team was the whole team for ETCR. It was all our other friends in the paddock. They were all there, like so hopeful for us and so excited to see us finally reach this milestone. That was um, being in the paddock with people supporting us was probably what motivated our team and got us through this year because when you're working so hard and things aren't going your way it can be really difficult to stay motivated but other people being there and cheering our accept our success was great but for me personally the funny thing is um like my team were going crazy elated all really excited and I, afterwards everyone was like oh my god you've done it you've made history how do you feel and I was like I don't really know I was like a little bit emotionless and now we're we're over a month on and I still haven't really had that kind of like wow moment yet and I was I was talking to my um my mum yesterday about the year and she was like but you've had this amazing success how do you feel about it and I was like uh, I don't feel like I've had the success yet. <laughs> I was like, maybe next year I'll feel like I've had the success. So I'm definitely very tough on myself. Um, a lot of us are really guilty of that. When I think about what we managed to achieve this year, despite all of the adversity, it's, it is, it's crazy. And it's been sheer passion from my whole team that's made that possible. And that is incredible and something I'm so, so proud of. But for me, I just feel like this is only the start. So I'm not I'm not celebrating yet, if you know what I mean. Well, you're focused on the to-do list. You know what else needs to be done. That's the problem. If you manage to have some time off at some point to let it sink in and just kind of step, take a step back, it will hit you and it's going to feel huge. I really wish that that happens because you absolutely deserve to feel it. But I know exactly what you mean. You, you have a huge project on your hands and just because you got the cars on track and managed to have the very first race doesn't mean that the job's finished and that's what you're focused on it's normal the funny thing is um there's like uh, there's a lot of really embarrassing youtube um uh eurosport footage of of our emotions but it was um we i was on the um on the pit wall by the start finish line and my team were all watching it on the live feed and had the timings up and i was kind of glancing at it but mainly just watching the cars every time they came past and what else was going on the track I was feeling so st sick in my stomach that I could barely watch what was going on because it's it's crazy I've seen insane things happening on track but when it's your own cars like it just feels so different when you've put in all that time I was like it like it just felt like nothing I could describe before with with racing so um only afterwards did I then watch the full race once it had happened um <laughs> on repeat and watch every corner and analyze everything but at the time I just kind of had to disengage a little bit because otherwise I couldn't cope emotionally <laughs> Well, it's your cars, the sense of responsibility attached to it. I, again, I'm putting myself in your shoes, but please correct me. But my my feeling at that point would have been, can I possibly muster enough energy to hold every single car together so that everything goes absolutely perfect and nobody has any issue? We already lost one car that didn't get off the, the line at the start of the race for the formation lap. And that was already like, oh my God. And you know what's so annoying about that is that the issue was with that car was with the 12 volt battery nothing to do with it being an electric car 
we had a failure in the 12 volt battery, which you get in combustion cars. And I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. And also it's a battery issue. So everyone's going to go, oh, it's because it's electric. And it's like, well, no, it's the small battery. In fact, there's two 12 volt batteries in our cars because you've got the main one and then the, the auxiliary 12 volt. <laughs> but like such a stupid reason to ruin somebody's race. And I was really gutted that that driver didn't get to drive as well. And then you feel responsibility it was such a, a stupid tiny issue and and of course we've learned from that as well but um in the, the franticness and the fact that it was new things like that are going to happen and it was um next year obviously we've we've got all of these things that we know can go wrong and um we've got a lot more time but when when you're kind of dealing with borrowed time and trying to get everything ready to a deadline that became unrealistic thanks to a global situation those things happen but we showed even with not so many cars on track that the racing next year is going to be so dramatic and exciting. So um, the feedback we've had since that has been has been incredible. The people watching the live stream, the people that then watched the highlights on Eurosport. The thing was, is everybody loved the racing. That's that's been one thing that's really um, that's really stuck with me. Is like we showed great racing and. That's something that we always wanted to achieve and that we wanted, you know, why are we here if we're not showing great racing? So the fact that we achieved that is um, is really exciting. And despite all of the, the the other things that are on the side and that we weren't running full power and all of this and that we had plenty of issues that we're totally honest about, because why, why would we not be? This has been really hard. Um, but we've proved that the racing is good. So with with every day that we have to... To kind of fine tune and now actually take that step back and say okay we're not rushing now with everything being delayed and we've got time to prepare for our next events this year and for next year hey look this one race was great so imagine how good it's going to be next it's going to be amazing i'm so excited for what's coming next well we're getting close to the end of the podcast and i wanted to ask you for anybody listening who dreams of following your specific path in motorsport what advice would you give them you need to just take every opportunity also be realistic about the tough times I would love to tell people that this is easy and wonderful and every day uh, you're going to be dancing around drinking champagne and rainbows but in reality it's just relentless hard work relentless rejection so brace yourself but never feel like you don't have a place in this sport or that this sport doesn't welcome you. I think that's the most important thing that we want to change with ERA. Don't look at motorsport and think this isn't for me if you're passionate about it. If you if you're passionate enough then there is place for you in racing. So if you if you're tough enough to deal with the hard side, if you're passionate enough about it to deal with the difficulties, then like go and like make yourself a place at the table like bring a chair to the table and sit down I think there's so many people that look at it and go oh, it's not for me and especially as a woman in motorsport obviously we've we've got a we're in a position where things are looking a lot better um, but it's still an important topic we need to talk about because it's not we're not there yet um, there's still gender pay gap issues we still don't have uh, women drivers in a lot of series don't look at that and be put off because we'll never make a change so make sure that you 
like if if there's not space for you make space <laughs> if if there's if if there's not a series for you to uh, run then make your own racing series <laughs> <laughs> if i could talk to my younger self i would say like be realistic about how difficult this is going to be and i i guess you would say the same because it's easy to look from the outside and be like oh yeah travel and glamour and all of this but it's 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 just damn hard work and you're going to be working on little sleep the the racing seasons can be crazy intense like our racing season was was quite short and will always be reasonably short in Europe but we had back-to-back weekends this year and that is um everyone will tell you that works in motorsport it's it's such a hard work but you'll also meet people that motivate you every day and the friends that you make in the paddock um the relationships you build in the paddock will be like nothing else you've ever experienced because it's it's so intense but yeah make that seat at the table that's that's the most important advice I don't I don't know I don't know if I have anything else useful to say no I like it get a chair get a chair (laughs) I'm paraphrasing uh, another famous quote but I think that's so important I think it's so easy for people to look and say ah this is this is not for me especially we talk about women in motorsport but there's also there's there's the wealth gap in motorsport and that's something we're really trying to address with ERA is um it's traditionally a sport for the wealthy um and we want to find ways to change that because um you're just excluding so many people on the basis of not being able to afford to participate or being able to even afford to pay per view for watching the races if you're behind a paywall and for some people even that kind of investment is is too much, especially in the world we're living in today, where um, people are struggling to pay their bills. They're not going to then pay for to watch race. So that's something I'm really passionate about: is people not being excluded from our sport based on any circumstance. If I could wave a magic wand and change one thing in our sport, it would just be that. It would be that our sport is accessible to everyone, no matter who you are. Wise, wise words. And finally, genuinely so happy to ask you this, Beth. What are you looking forward to? Well, I can't wait to get racing again. We needed some valuable time to be to be testing and to kind of recover from the drama that was this year, make plans and see what we're doing. But now that we have got our cars ready and waiting for people to come and drive them um, and that we're not starting our season on the back foot, I'm excited for the rest of this year, but I'm really, really excited for next year because we've now seen what our racing is going to look like and we've proven that our cars they're they're the same so when we get those 10 drivers behind the wheel we're going to have a dramatic season and i think that's something that for a lot of people is is often missing in racing now it's something that was so common in the 90s you'd have this dramatic season but Quite often now you can predict season endings very early on, even in racing series. And I think um, what what we're going to be doing will turn all of that on its head. And I can't tell you what will happen next year. I don't know. But I think prepare for some really, really dramatic racing. (laughs) That's what I'm most looking forward to. Excellent. I cannot wait. I'm going to be there supporting as much as I can. It's been a privilege to be able to watch the very first race on site in Zolda and I wish you every, every success. Beth, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth, for sharing your story. I could have chatted to her for hours. Beth is so passionate about what she's doing and has achieved so much already. I know I'll be cheering her on for years to come, I can tell. 
As always, I'd like to thank the producer of this show, Press Play Productions. The really very, very good Tabatha is the one who turns our brilliant chats into the very, very nicely edited podcast that you listen to each week. So thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can. Tell your friends, post about it on social media. Every single little bit helps. It's bringing new people to the podcast and I really hope that we can continue to grow the audience so that we can continue to make it. As you know, I read every message, every mentioned, and I absolutely love it. And feel free to send me some questions if you'd like, if you want anything answered. You can get in touch with me directly via the Instagram account Pandia, which is P-A-N-D-E-A. There's a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly if you'd like to. I basically use a lot of coffee to make this show and every little bit helps. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.